0: My mother's people came by ship and fought at Bunker Hill. My daddy lost a leg in France, I have his medals still. My brother served with Patton, I saw action in Algiers. Oh, we must be doing something right to last 200 years. Welcome to Michael and Us, I'm Will Sloan, here as always with...
1: Luke Savage, hey guys, uh, feeling a little low energy today, not gonna lie. Will- Luke is very low
0: energy. <laughs> Luke is a mess. Who am, I, who am I doing an impression
1: of? Oh, I, I couldn't say. It's a little too precise for me. went right over my head. I'm not sure if it's just because it's actually a morning recording session or because the film was uh, uniquely draining. But I was saying to Will before we started recording, you know, how is every single film we watch the worst one we've ever done?
0: Mm -hmm. We've said this on a recent episode, but there comes a point almost every week where it's 35 minutes into the movie and there's nothing left to learn. It
1: feels like 90 and you think to yourself, well, how much can really be left? And then... You know, your hand kind of just slowly creeps over to the remote and you check how many minutes are left. And oh, it's always so much worse than you think.
0: Politics, what a concept. That's the theme of this <laughs> week's episode. And uh, we, we, we've
1: said that before of many films we've done on the podcast, but I think this is probably the superlative entry. This is the definitive politics, what a concept movie. Speaking of politics, this
0: will probably be old news by the time the episode comes out. But uh, last week, there were the Democrat... Debates. Yeah, uh, I did not watch them. I have no reason to watch them. There's no professional <laughs> obligation to watch them. Well, that makes one of us. Uh, for you, however, yeah. you have to be down there in the content mines. You know, feeding coal. I'm into part the of fire.
1: the. I'm part of the press corps. Now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
0: um. You're one of the boys who shapes the discourse. That's one of The right. boys on the bus.
1: That's right. Yeah, I watched both debates and I filed an article on each one, so people can check that out at, uh, at over at Jacobin. I heard that. Uh, uh, Joe Biden did badly. That's what I heard. Oh, yeah. He had a really bad night. Apparently, uh, he ignored his debate prep. Um, his advisors just can't. They, 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 they can't they control can't, him. They can't rein him in. He's, oh, he's awesome. a wild animal. Uh, no, so he did really badly. And I mean, you know, debates are tend to be pretty stupid. There were too many people on stage both nights. And, you know, the act of reporting on the debates, if you're a mainstream pundit, is you're always just looking for, you're always looking to extrapolate these grand narratives from what tend to be very banal moments, so... A few examples would be you know on the first night you know julian castro was seen to do really well though i think in practice he had about 30 seconds where he's talking about immigration where he was kind of the center of attention Mm -hmm. um he was i think he's going after beto on evening two you know kamala harris was seen to uh do very well i I think it by the way it is probably her turn for media cycle you know mayor pete's had his beto's had his i will get to beto in a second The media meta-narrative is that Joe has kind of had his moment, and he's crashing and burning. We'll see what happens there. But uh, yeah, the media people, they all loved Kamala's performance, so uh, we'll probably be hearing a little bit more about her. What was that about Beto? Well, uh, I mean, it's great, because he's such a creature of the the media, but... uh, know, he's just entirely a media invention. But I think the media's consensus was that he did really poorly. He spoke Um, Spanish, right? He spoke a lot of Spanish. And I mean, he just failed to stand out at all. And uh, yeah, he did pretty badly. So uh, what was it like three months ago that he was on the cover of Vanity Fair? I was just born to be in it, man. Uh, How did Cory Booker do? My friend
0: Ethan mentioned that Cory Booker is starting to become a bozo who kind of owns now, which is a very specific category of person. What
1: What is exactly is meant by that?
0: A bozo who kind of owns
1: is exactly what it sounds like. Uh-huh. You know,
0: just a, just a bozo who kind of owns.
1: <laughs> He'll get his media cycle yet, just you wait. Um, and I mean, what I thought was incredible, I mean, you know, this was kind of the thesis of the first of two articles I wrote. About the debates was that obviously Bernie Sanders isn't the only figure or force that's driving the agenda of American politics But if you watched either of these debates and if, certainly if you watched both They both would have been inconceivable in a world in which he didn't exist. I mean he is completely uh, you know, a lot of people are talking about the Overton window. I think people should be careful. I think shifting the rhetorical grounds of politics is not the same thing as shifting them in a kind of more concrete or material sense. But all of these conventional Democrats, basically, or almost all of them, basically jumping over one another to try to embrace things that he was kind of seen as crazy for talking about in 2016. So, for example, on one of the nights when they were asked. You know what do you think the greatest threat to to America is and a whole bunch of them said climate change which was a punchline for the media in 2016 that's an example so
0: uh, he's shifted politics, he's moved the Democrats to the left, and now we can finally be done right, with them. Who right, needs them? That's Let's right. Let's get somebody a little less divisive. Because, uh,
1: you know, there has never been... It's our <laughs> role in the process, but a guy... He drones on about poverty, he just he just doesn't want to share a margarita with, you know, the the, the folks from Newsweek. A guy who
0: I always liked, even though I disagreed with his politics, was, was George W. Bush. <laughs> because, you know, I was there on the campaign bus with him in 2004, and... We may have had our differences, but uh, you know, he, he brought me a birthday cake. I am, of course, Alexandra Pelosi, the daughter of Nancy Pelosi and the director of the film we watched today, 2002's Journeys with George. I thank NBC for signing us, signing her to our campaign. <laughs> <laughs> I am so thrilled that we're all gonna be on the same plane pretty soon. I know. I'm, oh, that's gonna be So terrific. much quality time we're gonna spend <laughs> together. Can you play Jen? <laughs> I can drink it. Show that to her family. In the interest of full disclosure, I come from a long line of Democrats. My grandfather went to Congress in the 1930s as a New Deal Democrat. My mother followed in his footsteps. She went to Congress in the 1980s and didn't always see eye to eye with this President Bush. She always warned me to stay away from two kinds of people, Republicans and reporters. So when I ran off to join the media circus, she cried, where did I go wrong?
1: Well, it was pretty incredible to see a movie about George W. Bush that's pre 9-11. Oh, yeah.
0: Well, uh, we see him at all these events where the big slogan behind him is a reformer with results. Yeah, you remember that? You remember when he was going to be the education president? Right. No Child Left Behind, Compassionate (laughs) Conservatism. Well, you wouldn't necessarily know that from watching this movie because- while we see a couple of fragments of his speeches, none of those fragments have him talking
1: about any policy. Let's explain what the what this stupid movie was. So this one I, I mean I, I've run out of ways to say this because I've said a version of it so many times but this one really was rough okay (laughs) this this is a movie by Nancy Pelosi's daughter who's a documentary filmmaker of some kind and a a reporter for NBC that's right she basically had a kind of handy cam on her while she was following George Bush around during the primaries and and the general Mm -hmm. and so this movie almost exclusively consists of footage from kind of the campaign trail and mostly the bus and the airplane And it purports to be, as we said, a kind of, wow, politics, what a concept. This
0: is behind the scenes. We're going to show
1: you how it's really done. Yeah, so reporters just aghast at, you know, oh, we have to eat stuff out of cardboard boxes with processed cheese and oh, wow, you go from one to, you know, the morning you're in Cedar Rapids and in the evening you're in Iowa City. Can you believe it? I want to pause on that thing about food because Mm
0: -hmm. food is the issue that comes up most in this movie. We are constantly, constantly, like fully 15 times in the movie, we see the sandwich that Alexandra Pelosi (laughs) has to eat. We see the various boys on the bus you know, making fun of the processed cheese and a little bit of ham on the sandwich. The fact that it comes in, you know, saran wrap, and this is just food that ordinary people eat. Like, right. I mean, people eat sandwiches. The, yeah,
1: these these journal, these mostly upper middle class, or you know. Alexandra Pelosi comes from a very rich family. (laughs) Yeah, more than upper middle class, uh, you know, media people who are just like, oh, God, can you believe it? You got to eat, you got to eat food out of packages every day, sit under fluorescent lights. Are you kidding? It's insane. So anyway, we've told you what the movie kind of purports to be which is this peeling back the curtain We're gonna show you, you know, the nitty-gritty of politics and what it really is is kind of inadvertently a document about Why so much political reporting why so much punditry is utterly terrible sycophantic Why so much election season media coverage is just horse race bullshit? and that's illustrated inadvertently by this film through the i mean completely incestuous relationship that all of these reporters, photographers, press people, etc form with the George Bush campaign. I mean there is no pretense, even even when they've kind of just started out, there's basically no pretense that they are reporters who are there to cover something objectively. Uh, they see themselves especially by the end of the movie as extensions of the Bush campaign, they are rooting for him. They are co- I mean there's this ridiculous part where after you know W loses a primary to McCain or something and they're like oh and he responded by you know just like McCain he's opening up the plane and open up the bus so we have access to him and it's like you didn't have access to him before you're every scene in the movie is just you know you joking around with them oh, a around so much uh, yeah it's really it's really gross uh, one of the things the movie is lacking is a structure oh yeah um you know well there's there's the structure is temporal it's like you you start at point a and then time passes and then you find yourself at point b you're right but by definition there is a structure (laughs) but um in the same sense that every episode of our podcast has a structure yeah, and, and, and a day of your life has a structure because
0: the sun moves in the sky um but we start during the primary and eventually he's got the nomination and eventually he wins but there's uh, not much of a sense of what are the stakes of this election.
1: Well, I don't know. I was, I was kind of on the edge of my seat seeing, you know, which way the hanging chads in Florida were going to go.
0: Well, what a competent movie would do is after about 10 minutes, it would say, uh, you may be wondering how we got here. And there'd be a bit of a flashback, a bit of a montage where it's like, who is George W. Bush? Why does why does he matter at this moment in history? What are his ideas? What are the ideological differences that he's running against? First with John McCain, then with Al Gore.
1: If you were an outside observer, if you were an alien watching this movie and you had basically no, you know, you just had the most rudimentary context. Like this is an election in this, you know, important, you know, significant, large, wealthy, powerful country. This movie would not tell you anything about it. You don't even know who the players are. What is the George Bush campaign about? Uh, I mean, you hear him talk about faith-based initiatives like twice. But that's about, that's about, no did, context yeah, to that. no context for it. I mean, it is incredible, too, that the filmmaker is somebody who, by birthright, has just a lifelong immersion in politics and seems completely uninterested in it you know, I suppose because she's grown up so close to politics, it's all just kind of a game to her. It's all just laughing on the bus with the other, you know, the other elites, basically. Yeah,
0: she's not interested in policy or ideas, but she's very interested in sort of the trappings of politics. She loves the fact that the press gets its own plane that follows George's plane. She loves how if George makes a campaign stop at a school, yeah. the school has to be really cleaned and everything has to be perfect because it's all a game. Yeah, that's and it's the, all. That's the closest
1: <laughs> this film gets to a. Th- you know, a critical thesis is it's like, it's like, what if politics were an artifice? You know, like there's that scene where the guy is talking about how they set up the high school. And he's like, before Bush did a rally or something. And he says, Oh, you know, it's nothing's real. We just, you know, we cleaned everything up and this is not what the school looks like normally. And you're just thinking, Whoa. whoa.
0: (laughs) The closest thing that we get to a moment of conflict in this documentary is when, Alexandra asks George a question about, uh, you know, does he feel comfortable with the record number of executions in Texas? She asked this at a press conference and George says, I sleep comfortably at night. And then the next day he's a little bit He's playfully uh, ch- chastising yeah. her the next day. Like,
1: I'm not answering your question. You, you, you went below the belt yesterday, Alexandra. And then, she, below and, the belt. and then she's like, I realized, you know, how the game was played or something. You know, uh, it's my job. Like, you know, my network wants me to maintain a good relationship. with. It. And she's basically saying, and that's when I learned not to even ask the... The most elementary critical question because, you know, I might ruin my relationship with Governor Bush by having him just be like playfully angry on the plane the next day. Heaven forbid.
0: I seem to remember this being one of like the central (laughs) pillars of George Bush's image at this time. He was the death penalty governor. Executioner in chief. Why wouldn't
1: somebody ask about Uh, that? That's ridiculous. One of the things that I think is incredible, further to what you said before about how you know uh the filmmaker she's in awe of you know oh we get our own we're on the plane we're on the bus we're you know we are we get to be in the parade that's another part of it there's some <laughs> time where he's in the parade why and, do they get to be in a parade yeah, i have no idea why they're in the same parade like right behind George Bush as the George Bush press corps but there's a part of the movie right after the kind of primary section of it's finished where he's just the it's you know the general elections going and And there's a sequence where it's like, oh, wow, now we get a bigger plane. She says something like, and now every town we go in, the motorcade just shuts down the highway or whatever. This is where it became very clear that all the reporters in this movie, not just her, like all the other people on the plane and the bus have the same attitude. They see themselves and their careers as kind of rising in tandem with the campaign they're covering. And it's like, wow, he's famous now. And in a way, so are we.
0: Yeah, they never get over kind of the charge of being in the same room as a celebrity. Like some of them are actually shown asking George for his autograph. Oh, repeatedly. Yeah. And, you know, Alexandra Pelosi, again, the daughter of Nancy Pelosi really ought to be above this kind of thing.
1: I'm just recalling that in in the uh, first style guide I ever saw for the student newspaper that we both worked at, one of the guidelines for interviews was, you know, don't be unprofessional and ask for someone's autograph. Yeah,
0: I think that's a sage advice. Yeah,
1: understood by a student newspaper, not so much by the people in this movie.
0: We travel all over the country in this movie, um, but it all pretty much looks the same. The campaign bus starts to feel like Sartre's no exit. There are many sort of photo op events and occasionally the journalists will have a conversation about how, huh, they say it's just, a, uh, you know, it, George wants to go snowmobiling just for fun. But of course we know it's a photo op, but even though they see through, even though they're, they're masters of the game, it, it's not like that prevents them from doing the photo
1: op. They're all repeatedly pretending to be above the, the, the very thing that they're doing, but, but they, it's not like they, like if they really wanted to be above it. What they would do is just not play this game at all. They would actually just do their fucking jobs and be reporters. the The worst character in the movie is that Financial Times reporter. Oh yeah, so he's the he's the only uh, foreign reporter, and he's he's got a British accent, which means that the Americans in the film, you know, turn to him for for sagely advice, like he's the fucking oracle at Delphi or something. Yeah, yeah.
0: he's on the bus, but not of it. He's That's always true. sitting at the back of the bus, taking his notes and being like. Hmm. You know, campaigns are a funny thing. Many of the people who watch them don't know much about politics <laughs> at all. They like George Bush because they like him.
1: I really liked his observation that this is the greatest, the greatest story An election. It's a big deal, but you know, it's also a lot of fun. It's this is where uh, information and entertainment come together. You yeah, know, in a way, politics is all a show. What you know? a concept. As a politician, I think he's much smarter than people give him credit for. An incredible amount of charisma. Look how everyone goes completely weak at the knees whenever he comes back here. I think he's a pretty bad speaker, but I think he's great at shaking hands. I mean, he is truly gifted at shaking hands.
0: Or there's a part later in the movie where Bush is palling around with the people on the bus, and he says something like, "You know, George W. Bush is quite smarter than a lot of people <laughs> give him credit for." <laughs> you know, it's like it's like he's playing us like a harmonica, you know. <laughs> Oh, there's also a little fraction, a tiny little bit of tension in the movie because Alexandra has a crush on the Newsweek reporter.
1: Oh, yeah, who she keeps
0: referring to as the Newsweek guy. Yeah, and he is... uh,
1: a man who sort of uh, playfully negs her throughout kind of the first half. Of yeah, the he's kind of a he's kind of a Marlon Brando type, you know, just sort of a just rugged, just ruggedly yeah, oozing a lot of a lot of raw sex appeal, I would say. Uh, but they do not have an affair,
0: no, uh, even though it's heavily suggested that they might. And there's one point where uh, Alexandra Pelosi is talking to George about this, asking for his romantic advice, and George is just talking to her with a big old mouthful of food, saying, <laughs> "You know what, Alexandra, I think." Uh, I think too you're gonna to have a whirlwind romance on this trip. Uh, again, she's a reporter for NBC talking about her love life, her hypothetical love life with George W. Bush. You know, what it
1: reminds me of is uh, is the moment in uh, I'm forgetting which of the you know 50 Obama admin deputy comms directors you know memoirs that this was in. One of them had an anecdote of asking Obama for relationship advice like should I propose or something <laughs> and Obama's advice was uh well would she be a good mother you know yes and it's like well uh that means she's a keeper or whatever yeah. or something like that it was like do you love her you you, you would she be a good mother well that that's it and then he's so in awe of it he's like god that's when i knew i just gotten the best advice ever from the most powerful man in the world and it's like it sounds like obama was almost pulling his leg well obama was probably on his way
0: out the door at the time and said what's (laughs) the kind of most non-committal advice i could give yeah it's like
1: you know please dan or john it's like i've got someone to drone like oh uh, while we're talking about characters
0: in the film we see quite a bit of carl rove Oh, yeah. Who kind of uh, fills this archetype that you know, who's sort of the disheveled, overweight backroom boy who's a bit cynical about the whole process and is also like an evil genius. Yeah, his
1: head is full of facts. They ask him, you know, Carl, uh, Bush didn't do well in New Hampshire. Uh, is, he, is he done? And then he starts listing off, like... Well, in 96, quail, blah, 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 New Hampshire. And he's got all these facts in his head. And but, the reporters he, are just like, yeah, wow, how does he know all these exotic things?
0: But, but he also does it in this very snide tone. Like, huh, yeah, like, like when, when George H.W. Bush didn't do well in New Hampshire. Huh, remember that? <laughs> I'm the politics whiz. Yeah. yeah. The um, Republican nominee for president is speaking. Could you please? <laughs> yeah, just like Pat Buchanan was the nominee in 96. He won. What did he do in Iowa? He came in fifth behind Gary
1: Bauer, Alan Keyes, and Steve Forbes, and barely ahead of Warren Edge.
0: <laughs> so, I mean, there are a few things that I learned watching the movie. You know, there's a lot of talk these days about how the Democrats are in a civil war and how these Dems really need to just focus on the prize, which is Trump. They need to stop attacking each other because they're going to poison the well, we're all on the same side. Why can't we focus on the bad Republicans? Democrats, you know, over the last couple of election cycles seem to have sort of lost an understanding of what a competitive primary actually is. Uh, We see enough of the George W. Bush, John McCain primary to know that it's, I think, much more vicious than anything that's happening right now.
1: Well, it became conventional wisdom in 2016 that the Bernie Hillary thing was super hostile and nasty and stuff. And of course, in some ways it was, although paled in comparison to, I mean, it was, there was ideological hostility, but in terms of kind of the level of like just raw animosity, the campaign between Clinton and Obama was far worse, even though they disagreed about a lot less. I, I was,
0: of course, reminded watching this of the infamous John McCain's black baby campaign strategy.
1: Yeah, okay. I, I believe uh, which Karl Rove was responsible for, correct? Yeah. That actually doesn't come up in this documentary, Weird. strangely enough. Weird, that's very enough. strange that it doesn't come up. Yeah. Um, you know what else they don't mention? Al Gore won the popular vote. <laughs> yeah, well, no, it is
0: obliquely <laughs> referred to at the end when Alexandra Pelosi says, you know, some say the Supreme Court was wrong to stop the recount. Some say they were right. All I know is my network got the best ratings. And that's what matters. who who won at tv i was expecting her to come who won the news i was frankly expecting her to say a more kind of like maudlin sentimental point about how you know what who really won was the democracy the american voters and yeah i get more why the press hates bernie sanders i mean uh, apart from all of the ideological reasons it's hard to imagine bernie like palling around you know the, the the man doesn't have a fun bone in his body it's it's hard to imagine him like Cutting birthday cake he's, for the hacks on the plane. He's
1: all business. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure, he's, I'm sure he's nice with his grandchildren, but I can't imagine him doing this shit for media people.
0: I was also put in mind watching this of David Foster Wallace's famous article on oh, yeah. John let's, McCain.
1: Let's talk about that, because that is another, that's one of those things you read when you're 15. And you're like, wow, this is deep. Uh, but the, it is really yeah. like a politics, what a concept type
0: essay. The, the article is in his book, Consider the Lobster, oh, right. and it's called Up Simba. Uh, You know, I'm sure many of our listeners will know about David Foster Wallace. You know, for me, he was a a rather formative writer. Well, you know, I still like a lot of his essays. I I like a lot of his essays, too. And of course, Infinite Jest, which Uh I have not read. Uh, I haven't (laughs) read it either. But I do own it. (laughs) (laughs) But who doesn't? (laughs) But I did revisit his john mccain article up simba you know maybe
1: two years ago
0: early in the trump era and was quite heartbroken with how poorly it held up
1: yeah well i mean i think from what i remember that the main well the the only kind of innovation of it is that it's asking some questions about politics basically being an artifice kind of no matter he's on the bus and he's realizing that kind of no matter what they do the campaign is an artifice but then the problem with it is The thing he's really struggling over he's like but this mccain seems so like such a decent honest guy and so what does it being an artifice really mean well the article starts with about five pages of wallace talking
0: about mccain's vietnam experience saying you know just just imagine it imagine imagine you had suffered all these injuries and you were given an opportunity to break free, but because of the code, because of honor, you didn't.
1: Yeah, imagine you crashed the plane because you weren't qualified to fly it to begin <laughs> with. You got into the military because your daddy was an admiral.
0: So he comes in. You know really wholeheartedly sort of believing in mccain as a man of honor even though he doesn't agree with most of mccain's politics
1: he's a, uh, he's a bit of a liberal I and mean. uh, yeah. he, he, he
0: respects mccain as a man who believes what he believes no matter what it is and then he gets disillusioned through the article you know there's some incident you know i forget what it is exactly but the rhetoric between mccain and bush gets so heated and somebody at one of the, uh, like a plant, basically, in one of the rallies says, oh, Mr. McCain, why does politics have to be so mean? That's right. And McCain is like, you know, this this child has touched me deeply. And, uh, you know, choking back a tear is like, no more events for today. I have to reconsider my whole strategy. And Wallace starts to realize, wait a minute, there's something fishy about this. This seems a little artificial. And, you know, all of that doesn't really hold up for me anymore okay let's be serious
1: okay let's be serious if you were a tree what tree would you (laughs) be? yeah exactly i'm not i'm a bush
0: (laughs) see i'm a little quicker than you think alexander (laughs) This doesn't have much to do with politics, but perhaps it has something to do with uh, the cult of personality. I've been reading this new book about the making of Eyes Wide Shut. It's called Eyes Wide Shut, Stanley Kubrick, and the making of his final film. You know, I got it because Eyes Wide Shut is one of those legendary productions where I think it shot for 18 months, Mm -hmm. and he was mulling it over for... Thirty years before Dude. that. I'm about halfway through it now. I'm at the stage where they're filming it. The rigors that he put his various writers through, you know, and what he put himself through, like for some reason, you know, it was based on this novel, Trom Novel, by Arthur Schnitzler. And so Kubrick for some reason spent decades learning about uh fantasy ecla Venice and during the production of the film famously meticulous going over every single shooting shooting
1: every scene over and over again right there's that scene where it's just tom cruise walking into a room and they did like several days or was it a whole just one whole day of just this same thing over and over again and the scene where uh, cruise and kidman have that bedroom argument together
0: and Kubrick had this strategy of, you know, he was in another room, you know, getting getting the feed while they were shooting it. So it was basically just them in the room together, and he would force them to do take after take. So simultaneously building this, this sort of safe space for them, this intimate space, but also just torturing them by making them do it over and over and over again. And he would do things like he became unusually close to Cruise and Kidman while he was making the film. He he came to know them so well because he wanted to foster this trust, but then he would also do things to pit them against each other, like when Nicole Kidman was filming those dream sex scenes, he made sure that Tom Cruise couldn't be on the set, and he wouldn't give Tom Cruise any information about what was being filmed, so to foster this sense of jealousy. <laughs> and during the shooting of the orgy scenes, he did the same with Nicole Kidman. She can't know anything about what's happening here.
1: And This is psychopathic behavior. I think I mean just did this really make the movie better <laughs> I don't know there was I mean the proof is in the pudding It's it's not the best Kubrick film, but it's uh, it's you know, I've enjoyed it every time. I've seen it What, what do you think of eyes wide Shot? We watched it once together. Yeah, we did uh, years ago. I quite enjoy it I think it's maybe a little flawed in certain ways that I can't quite put my finger on I've never been sure about the, the final scene in it and kind of the last line I've never quite bought it, but I love the dreamlike quality of it, which is partly due, it's due to many things, but I think it's partly due to Kubrick not ever being willing to travel. So Mm -hmm. New York City just being obviously a set, it looks kind of cool.
0: Well, I've always had trouble with that element of the movie. And as the book explains, he wanted to create a New York of his memory and he wanted to create a New York that was like New York you would see in an old movie. And he also wanted to create a New York where, you know, you're basically in Tom Cruise's head. And so all that really matters is what he's going through. So that's why the streets are so empty. I think I've always had a bit of a trouble with the movie because like he wants to make some statement about a long marriage. He wants to make something that's very deeply relatable. And yet it's done in this style that seems to just exist in his own head. Mm -hmm. You know, like I don't I don't feel there's not the rawness to the movie
1: that he was going for well
0: like there's there's a certain rawness but i watch it and i feel very like cold and removed from it it doesn't it doesn't feel like somebody ripping a band-aid off me which i feel like it ought to feel like
1: i think that's what it's supposed to to be but i I don't know know i I I love the dreamlike quality of it yeah well the
0: the other thing though is uh i don't mean to dismiss the movie because there's nothing like it Mm -hmm. you know like it's a film out of time
1: (laughs) what do you think's the worst kubrick film
0: Oh, well, you know, th- uh, like not, not not counting not like fear, and, fear desire. and
1: desire like
0: I think I gotta say Full Metal Jacket
1: Yeah, I think I'd agree
0: which is still, you know, pretty good a lot but. of
1: people uh, a lot of people will think that's heretical I remember posting a, a rank, you know, one of those t- tweets where it was like Kubrick, mo-, you know, rewatched all the Kubrick movies here They are ranked i think i put that one it it was it was near the bottom or was on the bottom people were so mad i mean it's got a great first 40 minutes yeah the first 40 minutes are great and then the rest of the movie is pretty much wow war what a concept and also i mean
0: the fact that he built a whole
1: Vietnam set instead of going
0: to film in Vietnam, and the fact that the set looks so set-like...
1: Yeah, it looks he, weird.
0: Well, you know, I, I'm sure there will be those who will say, well, that's the point. But it sometimes seems to me a little bit like Tommy Wiseau building nah. that building that roof set for no reason, nah. you And know? it's,
1: it, it's, you know, it's perfectly good as a war movie, but it's just, you know, the, the thesis of the second part of the movie is just war is hell, and mm-hmm. that's not... That's not as interesting as other things Kubrick's developed. What do you think the best one is? Oh,
0: God. You know, it's really hard to choose. Barry Lyndon or 2001? Uh, It's got to be one of them, Honestly, Dr. Strangelove is also in contention. You think so? Yeah, I think so. But, you know, I think I actually would say Barry Lyndon. I think it's the ultimate articulation of his worldview.
1: Do you know anything about this Napoleon? I mean, obviously he was going to make that Napoleon movie and it failed and he sort of did Barry Lyndon instead, but I heard they're re- they're making it for uh, HBO. Oh, yeah, Netflix I heard that
0: too, maybe based on his script. Yeah. I mean, there's a big Tashin coffee table book that you can get that has Because they the had script. all the
1: costume designs and everything, and, and they had a script, right. He so. didn't
0: even make that many movies. He spent years developing these films that he just abandoned, because yeah. they had to be just perfect, which, you know, as I read more and more about Kubrick, all this preparation obviously makes the Kubrick movies the way they are, And it's incredible that by sheer force of talent, he was able to get a studio, Warner Brothers, to indulge him in these long productions. And he got people like Tom Cruise at the height of his popularity to just put two years aside to make a movie. But the insane perfectionism of his films isn't necessarily what I often enjoy in movies. I often enjoy movies that seem to have a little bit of air, a little bit of room for spontaneity, space for flaws to emerge, Whereas I think, you know, oftentimes, especially when you're discovering movies, when you're a young person, there's a mystique to Kubrick. It's like he's this godlike figure. He knows everything. He knows all. Every detail is perfectly arranged, and there's something awe-inspiring and comforting about that. But I don't know. I think I think right now I like a filmmaker who can sort of make room for error a little more.
1: Well, you compare uh, compare any of Kubrick's films to any of the big Herzog Kinski collaborations, yeah. the dramas. Just off the top of my head, there's that scene in Cobra Verde where that just magical scene where it's the little girl singing and dancing towards the end of the movie. And that's just a, sort of basically a spontaneous moment that he captured. I mean, Herzog is not somebody who really storyboards.
0: And I think there's a lot more. I, I wouldn't say Herzog is better than Kubrick, but there's a life, there's there's a, a live wire element to a lot of his movies. And you can also sense, particularly in the documentaries, Herzog finding these uh, strange spontaneous moments like that penguin in encounters at the end of the <laughs> world who just starts running mm-hmm. when you open yourself up to
1: spontaneity well imagine how much less raw and interesting the boat going over the mountain in Fitzgerald would be if Kubrick did it it would be because it would all be on a, a set yeah and it would look it would look really synthetic and sterile
0: yeah and uh it would be hard to ima- imagine Kubrick working with Klaus Kinski I mean that would, it would never
1: happen <laughs> <laughs> (laughs) (laughs)
0: We'd like to tell you folks just a little bit what's been happening on the Patreon if you're not a subscriber. Last week we watched, God, how would you describe it? We watched a recording of Bill and Hillary Clinton speaking in Toronto last fall during their Blockbuster Stadium tour. What are the Clintons like now? People have been trying to sort of distance themselves from the Clintons these days, but You know, they're still they're still political animals and they still got things to say. If you want to hear about uh, Bill Clinton's thoughts on the trade deficit, you should give us five dollars a month. And before that, we finally delved into the oeuvre of uh, maverick documentarian Morgan Spurlock, one of the original Me Too boys. We're we're
1: not going to tell you if he ended up catching Osama bin Laden, but he (laughs) but he did go looking for him. I mean, you know what I know? What I know is that Osama bin Laden is dead so put two and two uh, together yeah folks we did we did a couple other things uh, more recently we did um the onion movie which was really uh really a slog we also did a 100th anniversary spectacular revisiting slacker uprising which i had a lot of fun with
0: yeah it was fun to see
1: you know how we've grown <laughs> and how the movie itself has grown <laughs> Thanks to everyone who's continued to support us on Patreon or who's joined recently. There's a great little community on there. We're getting lots of fantastic suggestions about things to watch. Diamonds in the Rough. Bits of political and cultural paraphernalia we'd never heard of. And also lots of just genuinely good shit. So thanks, guys. In fact, this movie was suggested by a listener, I believe. Uh, I I dug
0: up his name, Heath Gardner. Thank you so much for suggesting this movie. Thanks, Heath. And, you know, uh, as I was watching this movie... Alexandra Pelosi was talking about how on the bus there's there's sort of a family you know and and now I I look at Michael and Us Nation and it's like we're kind of a family too you know now watch this drive just don't show up at my house